Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Hi, my name is David Schwartz, and I'm the chief curator of the Museum of the Moving Image. And we're very uh, proud to be co-hosting this screening tonight with Al Gore, who you will meet shortly. And this is an amazing movie. I think whatever you think you're in for, you're going to be surprised. What I want to do is introduce the two uh, heads and co-founders of Sony Pictures Classics, a remarkable company that gives us so many great independent films, uh, Michael Barker and Tom Bernard. Well, we want to thank the Museum of Moving Image for putting this screening on. It's just great. And uh, I'm here to introduce a, a friend of Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, you know, he made this movie that we saw in Cannes, which we thought was remarkable. You know, he shot it in his backyard, he directed it, he acted in it. It was sort of a homespun kind of film. And so he asked one of his friends if they'd come up and introduce the film and, and you know, host it with Tommy. So I want to bring Tommy's roommate down from college, Al Gore. <laughs> say a few brief words. I met Tommy Lee Jones 40 years ago this past September and we've been close friends all that time. We both up in uh, Boston we both identified with the roots that I had in the south and that he has in the southwest. We, we became good friends early on partly because of that. But you know this movie as you'll see is partly about the meaning and strength of friendship and it's something that I can tell you as somebody who's been on the receiving end of his great friendship he knows an awful lot about. The only other thing I want to say is he has uh, said, maybe you've seen some of the fantastic early reviews of this, it's a, it really is great, but he has always said when asked about it that uh, he just wants the movie to speak for itself, and people ask him, does it have a political message? Well, I'm under no such constraints. I think it does. <laughs> He's an artist, and really since uh, he, he was, he was uh, that way in college, he played in all the student productions and did such a, a fantastic job, but he's always had that deep commitment to, uh, to creativity and art. But he also has passionate feelings, and he won't, or he won't say. You know, back uh, when he did uh, Men in Black, which was so much fun, he wrote the part of that script where the, the two men in black encounter uh, immigrants coming across the Mexican-U.S. border and put that in there. And the attitude that we have toward the others... <laughs> Uh, divided from us, in this case by a border, whether it's by culture, by language, by heritage, or whatever. He is of the border region of Texas. Uh, we, uh, we've uh, spent time on the beautiful ranch, which is one of the stars of, well, the whole part of it's on the ranch, but part of the whole, that whole border region, and it is one of the stars uh, of the film also. But here we are in a time when 
our country has uh, has gotten it wrong, in my opinion, on what uh, compassion is owed by us to those who we define as others on the other side of the artificial lines that we draw. And, and, and getting it right involves the humanity and the, the, the human feeling that is really at the core of, the, of what I think is the message of this film. It will speak for itself. But I want to now claim the privilege and honor of introducing my buddy, Tommy Lee Jones. Thank you all for coming. It's cold out there, and I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm glad that you're you're here. Uh, again, I thank you all for the kind remarks. Uh, you will find that alienation is a, a, a theme here. It's uh, uh, by the way, don't don't be bashful about laughing because you'll have that chance a time or two. Please take it. <laughs> um, and um, and borders are a theme, and there we, we consider it from different points of view. There are many. I think we, we all know by now swimming a river is not the only way to achieve alienation. <laughs> and uh, international borders are not the only borders. The, the, maybe we'll have a chance to one day to look across the borders and figure out who's looking back at us and come to the right conclusion that it's us. Well, congratulations. It's a great film, and it uh, takes us in so many different directions, and there's so much to it. You've worked for 50, as an actor, you've been directed by about 50 different directors. So how does it feel to realize that you're so much more talented than most of them? <laughs> uh, I don't know that I have that feeling. You don't? Okay. Well, you could. <laughs> the uh, story that this was um, maybe inspired by, well, he'll tell me if that was true or not. There was a case of a, of a young uh, immigrant, Ezekiel Hernandez, who was shot by a Marine. Uh, and that was in the news a bit back in 1997. Did that spark this? Um, no, I, I, I actually uh, asked uh, Guillermo Arriaga to uh, familiarize himself with that uh, issue. Um, I had a, a, a record of all the, uh, you know, the congressional report on their hearings, and I'm asking him to read that. Mm -hmm. uh, Ezekiel Hernandez's family had been living in Texas for many generations. He was not an immigrant. Mm -hmm. He was a United States citizen, mm -hmm. a pitcher on the baseball team who did his homework. He's a good kid. Uh, his family was Hispanic. Uh, like all families that lived in the country in that region, they, the family had goats, and, and like all of those families, the responsibility for the goats fell to one of the older boys. And uh, Ezekiel was the family's uh, chivero, or uh, goat keeper. And he would turn the goats out in the evening so they could go out and browse, and he would... Um, so, um, often take a 22 rifle with him, 22 caliber rifle to uh, protect the goats from coyotes before he put them up at night. He took a shot one day at what he thought was a coyote, and there happened to be three United States Marines in camouflage. Um, they'd been there a long time on stakeout looking for drug dealers, and um, either in their boredom or in paranoia, I don't know what it was, they decided they were taking fire from dangerous drug dealers, and they uh, stalked the kid for 30 minutes and then shot him and killed him and then they disappeared no one was ever brought to trial or held 
responsible to any degree for that. And that incident was um, insulting to some of us who live in that region. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I did not want to make a movie about that kid. Uh, I, in fact, I wouldn't even have mentioned his name. And I, and I did not want to make a movie about that incident. Certainly didn't want to do anything to um, offend the privacy of his uh, family, certainly not his ma- mother mm-hmm. and dad. Um, but there were uh, social tensions at work there that uh, I thought might inform um, the movie. So we didn't base it on Ezekiel's death. Uh, we based it on a world in which Ezekiel's death is, and the manner of it is possible. You contacted a screenwriter, a remarkable screenwriter, Guillermo Arriaga, who had done Morris Peros and 21 Grams. Could you talk about what you told him originally that you had in mind and how your, your uh, relationship professionally and as a friendship developed? Well, um, you know, I, I really liked Morris Peros and, and um, I was talking to my friend uh, Michael Fitzgerald, who ultimately became a co-producer on this film, about how much I liked it. And it was original, and um, he'd never seen it before. It was just a wonderful movie, and Fitzgerald said, well, if you liked it that much, let's call the guy up. I said, no, one doesn't do that. You don't call people that you don't know. He said, that's fine. He picked up the phone and called him. And, and, um, uh, two or three days later, we were having dinner in Los Angeles at a house that I had leased um, because we were working there with... Uh, Fitzgerald Ayaga and his wife uh, Maru, uh, Alejandro Inyaritu, who had directed Mortis Peros, and his wife, and we just had an ordinary dinner, and uh, like they do in California, where you talk about movies and politics and kids and tell jokes and have a great time. And Ayaga and I, and, uh, and our wives all liked each other. We had something in common, and and he became a hunting buddy. We uh, were, were responsible for a certain for some land and, and all the animals on it uh, and we, we really have to ki- kill a certain number of deer every year to keep them from overpopulating mm-hmm. so it's not good for them and so he became a hunting buddy and um, I think a couple of years later I was driving across a rather large piece of property with Arriaga and I looked over at him and Fitzgerald and said you know guys there's a lot of talent in this pickup we ought to make a movie <laughs> and they said yeah sure let's make a movie and um, that's pretty much how it got started. And what were, some, what were some of the ideas you had in mind? I mean, the film um, evokes certain westerns, it evokes films of Sam Peckinpah, but it's, there's, as I said before, there's a lot of other stuff going on as well. Yeah, I think it was important to everybody that we make a movie that hadn't been seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, that was important. <laughs> um, we, we tried to be original. Another important collaborator, of course, is Chris Menzies, a cinematographer. I mean, this film is an odyssey. The story is an odyssey. The character goes through, but it seems like the production must have been as well. Uh, the production was pretty simple. <laughs> we did our homework, and we were very mm-hmm. well prepared for everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a flood down on the Rio Grande that ran us off uh, for about 10 days. Otherwise, we were very well prepared. Chris Mangus is um, the first guy I thought of. You know, and mm-hmm. I, I knew what, when we had the script, I knew what movie we were, we were going to make, mm-hmm. and I thought, who... Uh, in my experience of watching movies has shot the biggest and most beautiful exteriors in the wildest hardest to get to places mm-hmm. well the answer to that is Mangus if, if it's you know, or that's, that's the answer yeah. and uh, so uh, we called him and, 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 and met with him and uh, um, understood right away that he was very bright mm-hmm. well read 
Um, I knew he was very good with the camera. I knew that he was interested. He's very hard. He turns down a lot of work. And he said he was interested in this. Uh, and he's a man of very few words. And, uh, and that was a plus. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so this is a film that's filled with remarkable performances. I want to uh, mention we have one, and one actor in the audience tonight, Melissa Leo, who does a great job. Talk about some of the one of the strongest things about the film are some of the woman characters, the female characters. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you um, So, could you talk maybe about how some of this uh, jumping back to sort of how some of the storylines develop? The film has an interesting narrative structure, an interesting. Uh, well, you talk, speaking of the women characters, I, I, personally, I think all the women in, in the in the movie are quite strong. Mm-hmm. They don't all make sense. Um, some of them are idiots, uh, but they're not weaklings. None of them, from the little girl who fights the border patrolman and then winds up giving the border patrolman an ear of corn and inviting him to join the family, to to um, even the old uh, dog kissing lady, the Japanese dog kissing lady. They're all quite strong. Um, uh, Melissa certainly. Not that she makes any sense, or is perfectly, entirely respectable. She's not weak. <laughs> and um, the, the, the I think the weakest female character ultimately winds up doing something quite strong and brave. She gets on a bus and leaves town. And I'm sure part of the idea of the film is that there's no simple heroes and villains. That you've no, got absolutely no. We didn't. That's kind of boring. And the, the performance, uh, Barry Pepper's performance, uh, is essential. Beautiful job. Emotionally and, uh, yeah. and and physically, and um, he had to, he also had to do some thinking, and so uh, and he uh, stepped right up. Could you tell us anything about directing that last scene with him? That's so essential that the transformation that he has in the last scene. It was pretty easy. We knew where we were supposed to go by then, yeah. Yeah. and where we wanted to wind up. So um, really, like that scene is like most of the other scenes in the movie. We. Uh, we planned to get it right on the first take every time, and we usually did. <laughs> Another performance I just have to ask you about is Levon Helm, because that's just uh, so... Uh, Levon's great. Yeah, that character, uh, which seems to be a, a, maybe a reference to the Odyssey, but it's... it's <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a long journey, and it has... Uh, it, um, it starts in a bad place, and you have uh, you have to go through a few other places. Some of them are dangerous, uh, mm-hmm. even life-threatening. Some are funny. Mm-hmm. Some are... Um, uh, mysterious um, and um, all of them arduous until you wind up in a good place mm-hmm. where Mr. Hero finally understands who he is and is able to relate more gracefully to the world around him. Usually, somewhere yeah. along the way, there's an oracle. Yeah. And this is an old, old uh, story form which I thought would serve us rather well. Yeah. Now, I, I know that the film is not a simple political statement, but one thing I do want to ask you about is that what that last scene, what the ending really evoked for me was that if, um, if you look at the situation that we're in, in, in the world right now, the war, wars that we're fighting, the war in Iraq, if you ever understood the people that we're fighting against, the, the people that, that are being killed, if you ever understood one of them as even being, that things might, might be different. I, that's sort of heavy-handed, but I'm just wondering if you could talk about how, the, how you see this film as relating to what's going on right now. Well, it's um, not something that I would, you know, yeah. 
ordinarily talk about. I don't mm -hmm. want to stand next to the film and right. tell people what it, what it, what it means. Yeah. It was our it's our instinct, our d desire to humanize the differences between people, yeah. uh, while raising all the important issues at the or touching on on them, evoking them maybe, but at the same time uh, taking a, a humanist uh, a point of view. Um, you examine the sexual lives of these characters uh, <laughs> very interesting way and that, that element seems very important in the film well uh, in, in terms of Mike Norton and his wife uh, he's, at the beginning of the movie he's not a very nice person, he's not caring he's not giving mm -hmm. he's uh, egocentric he's ethnocentric mm -hmm. you have to start him someplace yeah. because you're going to wind up in a better place yeah. And poor Sheriff Belmont is alienated in his own way. He can't get anything done. <laughs> uh, he can't shoot anybody. He can't perform sexually. He's not much of an authority figure, and he doesn't. He knows he doesn't like himself very well. He's he's alienated. Um, and uh, we look at alienation from a lot of different point, you know ways. There's swimming a river. It is not the only way to make yourself an alien. Um, and he has his own struggle, which is solved rather neatly by the decision to go to SeaWorld. <laughs> in terms of the sort of, um, narrative structure, the way it jumps around in time, that's, uh, it's so beautifully done here. I wonder if, if any of that evolved in the editing process, or if that was pretty much there? No, the idea was, um, Ariaga's idea and mine, was that uh, there'd be some kind of confusion about the, the incident at the yeah. core of, of the movie. You know you know that your friend is dead, but who killed him and why, how, who knows. And these, as I spoke to the cast and crew, I told them this is going to be just like real life. Yeah. Um, in other words, uh, the past and the present and the future all occur simultaneously. And I would say, do you understand? And they said, no. <laughs> and I said, well, let's, you know, let's, let's try to think of it that way. And as the journey progresses, the confusion smooths out as you reach uh, what I hope is looked upon as a happy ending. The shots become longer and bigger and broader. and um, Things make more sense as uh, our um, character, Mike Norton, develops his education. I have to ask you a special effects question, which is the uh, horse falling off the cliff. How, that, how many horses did you use, or how does that scene, how does that scene feel? <laughs> Horses are so cheap. <laughs> it's just one after the other. <laughs> they need to all be buckskins because it shows up against the red rocks. <laughs> uh, well, really what we did was, um, you know, there aren't very many good movie horses around anymore because not many Westerns, so-called Westerns, are made. there's not a demand for a good movie horse. And uh, we had... One good one, he was uh, the horse that did the falling in the sand. That guy's yeah. 19 years old. His name was Bill. And um, he's one of the last really good falling horses. Uh, the buckskin was actually one of the ranch horses uh, on that ranch. He belonged to me. And uh, Billy Burton and I taught him how to uh, stand up on his hind legs and paw the air on cue. He got to where he really loved it. He's a total handbow. <laughs> and he got really good at it. And um, it took about two weeks to teach him that, but very smart animal. And then all you have to do is show him doing that and getting the mule kicking. And then 
go for a very clever insert on his hind legs, dancing backwards, and then you cut from a mile away to a, the wide shot, and you throw an articulated dummy off the edge of the cliff. It's uh, with five cameras set up hmm. all around. Uh, articulated dummy means it's a, a model, and it has a little motor inside that will move its legs and head a little bit so that um, in action you, you think that it's um, alive. Didn't the horse land on one of the cameras? Or? Yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> and also the, cor- the rotting corpse is a big effect, too. You know. Yeah, John Blake did a wonderful job on, on designing that and uh, maintaining it. We, um, <laughs> there's actually a, a company in the San Fernando Valley that does nothing but uh, build dead bodies out of Blake. They make a pretty good living at it. We, um, Blake worked very carefully with some doctors and morticians, and we built three of them to represent various stages of decomposition. I'm going to open it up to the audience. I just want to ask you one more thing, which is what, uh, if this was a hard film to get made in terms of getting financing back? Oh, it was very easy. Once we you know, went through 11 drafts, came up with mm-hmm. a shootable script, sent it to one guy, and made a deal. Okay. You make it sound so easy. Mysteries that are left unsolved in the film. I'm just wondering if any of that happened in editing, or if the mysteries that are unanswered were intentional, or it was always your intention. Yeah, there's some unanswered questions, and uh, I think those are good and healthy. I mean, the first one that occurs is that his wife or not? Is she lying? Is he lying? And um, that applies to uh, an important thing in the movie, which is uh, the meaning of and the mechanics of, uh, of faith. What can you know believing do? Uh, is there a humanist? Is there a not humanist? I mean, if you believe in it, you build it, and, it, and okay, there is one. It's there. Uh, you know, it's been said so often that seeing is believing, and I think, from my point of view, it could easily be said that also believing is seeing. How was it directing yourself? <laughs> it was pretty easy. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if you're collaborating with a writer and you're uh, a producer and a director and an actor, having any three of those jobs makes the fourth one a lot easier. The last line is masterful. I wondered, did you or the actor decide how to deliver it so that it wouldn't be a gag line, which it easily could have forgotten the wrong kind of laugh? That's a good question. Uh, on the day that I made the deal to make this movie, uh, which is years ago, a few years ago, I was on a, on a, sitting on the stern of a boat with um, Luc Besson, who runs Europa Corps. He's a filmmaker and uh, uh, an, an important figure in French cinema, even in world cinema. And we made the deal very quickly. And he never interfered with us at all. Uh, it was a simple case of, se- of uh, me saying... Um, here's the script, here's the budget, we're going to stick to both. And he said, here's the money, we'll see you at the premiere. Didn't hear from him again. Before he got off the boat that day, he said, oh, but there's one scene. You must change the last uh, line. <laughs> okay, man, as long as we got a deal, what do you want? He said, he should simply say, are you going to be all right? <laughs> And I said, okay. And, um, as we thought about it, and as we continued to work on the script, it answered a lot of questions for us. It really made a lot of decisions that uh, appear in the story before that easier. To try to get this insensitive character to somebody who really cares and to express a humanity uh, and concern for others, a decency, 
fellows learned. Um, so simply and elegantly, it was uh, actually Luke's idea. Oh, there were 10, 15 different versions. Different things happened. Um, we hadn't really had the idea of uh, being so concise. I'm curious about the casting process. Did you hold anything like a formal casting? Did you know all these people personally? Uh, especially, of course, um, uh, the antagonist. Well, we went through... Um, a conventional casting pro- uh, process in, in Austin and in California and in Mexico City with um, lots of different actors. Uh, you know, the others, there was a, a different search uh, with uh, some. He just decided uh, who would be really good for the role. You pick up the phone and call them and ask, ask them if they'll read the script and then call them two days later and say, did you like it? And they, and they usually said, yeah. So it was a variety of... Uh, approaches. How did you reach your decision on a composer? I listened to a lot of composers and um, and I read a lot of resumes and I liked Marco's resume you know, because he, I knew he was intelligent you know, he'd gone to an awfully good school um, and he uh, and, then he'd, and then he'd become an apprentice of uh, Inno Morricone who, uh, whose music he would recognize instantly from Sergio Leone's films and, uh, and I listened to everything that he had um, done. I could tell that he knew how to compose. And I could also tell, I thought, this is, this, this is a young man. This kid is probably starving to death for creative license because the movies he's been doing are... <clears throat> some of them made some money, some of them didn't. He's been making a lot of money. <clears throat> movies aren't, weren't really that good. Um, this is a guy that really needs an opportunity. So I figured... You know, I'd, I'd be a long search before I found somebody with that much talent and, and with uh, that much willingness to work cheap. Because <laughs> uh, I, I felt that I had something that I could offer him, um, some chance at a, a creativity that had been beyond his grasp uh, so far. I think his, uh, this is his best work of anything that he's done. And I think his opportunities are going to uh, grow. Did, uh, you were just speaking about the soundtrack. What about the sound design? Was that all you or and your sound designer? You alone? Um, that was a team. There was a sound, uh, you know, there was a sound editor. There was a dialogue editor. There was a sound mixer, and uh, five or six guys were really, well, seven guys, really handy with computers and keyboards working in what is probably the best sound mixing facility in the world, it's in Normandy <coughs> it belongs to Eurovacor and Luc Besson it's way out in the country France uh, in an old chateau and there's places you know, right there uh, housing for the entire crew there's nothing to do <laughs> nowhere to go Certainly no CNN. Um, and you, all you do is uh, work and eat and sleep. So we were pretty well organized. You'd get up very early in the morning, have a little bread, cheese, whatever you do in France, and then go <laughs> work until lunch, have a nice lunch, 
then keep on working with the best equipment in the world. And then go to dinner and then come back and work until you fall asleep. And then you do it all again the next day. And, and the next day, and they, well, we, I let them have Sundays off. <laughs> Otherwise, it was, it was and they were, some of them thought they were in prison by the time it was, it was over. But we, uh, we really had a lot of capability there. I met a, 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 a woman, a, a Mrs., a, I think Linda McCauley was her name, a very well-to-do woman. I had dinner with her one time in uh, Palm Beach. And um, she had a lot of time on her hands. And, and, uh, and, I, and what this woman had been doing with her life was traveling the world recording bird songs. She had, uh, she told me she'd been all over North America. She was building a library of bird songs uh, for Cornell University, and I said, "Well, oh, by the way, have you ever uh, do you have you recorded any of the birds of the Northern Chihuahua Desert?" She said, "I got them all." <laughs> and I said, "Would you mind if I use that CD? Could I avail myself of that?" She said, "Yeah, I'll send them to you tomorrow." Where, where, where you want. So uh, I took that with me when I, I went to France. And so you're talking about the sound mix. I really had the capability. There was six, eight guys down there with little. Com- and I really, it was very easy to say, I would, right there, like to have a canyon rent, there and there and there. And, um, and then later on, how about five morning doves? Here, and it was done. Uh, so the, the reason that you're impressed with the sound mix is essentially the very highest quality of equipment that we had to work with that uh, Luke Besson made available to us. I want to congratulate you. You've mastered so many aspects of filmmaking on this first film. So. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.